0: Welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is a Band of Brothers podcast. Uh, You're joining us for episode number nine, which is titled Why We Fight. Uh, Of course, this is the name of uh, the actual Band of Brothers episode. And this is uh, one of the absolute deepest episodes of the entire show that they get into. Um, I'm Tim, of course. Joining me, as always, is Tom. Tom, how are you this afternoon?
1: I'm good. And I feel like because of the weight of this episode, we have to front load all of our jokes because it's going to get just real heavy <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, get them all out in the first few minutes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like we don't want to be inappropriate later on. No. Um, and and really, I mean, there, there were while there were a couple moments of levity in this episode, uh, there's there's certainly not much of it. Um, and actually not even a lot of uh, in terms of kind of the traditional quote action that we've seen in previous episodes. I I don't even know that there was a weapon that was fired in this entire episode. No, it it was like, it was all drama and, um, but very important drama. Uh, I mean the, the, the title, why we fight really reflects a a significant change in things. But when, when we look at early in the war, and some of this was certainly reflected in. in I think primarily the first episode. Uh, there, there was it was enough for the soldiers to know that there was an enemy, and that enemy was bad. Even if they couldn't define necessarily why they were bad or what bad things that they were doing, they knew that there was an enemy out there that was threatening their allies, and that was enough for hundreds of thousands of young men around this country and in other countries to sign up to go to war and in the few years that this war went on um we we talked i think particularly in the last couple of episodes the the toll the mental toll that that took on a lot of the men seeing that death and destruction around them and becoming much less much less enthusiastic about being at
1: war And this, you could almost split this episode into two, and it's such a beautiful juxtaposition of things. We'll get into that a little bit more later, but um, this is one of those episodes, probably of all ten. And we'll see how the the last one impacts me when I watch it again. But I probably my first time through didn't pick up sixty. 65, 70% of, of this episode. I was probably focused on, oh man, a German concentration camp and that's awful and sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nix is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think those were my takeaways when I watched it as a high schooler. Yeah. <laughs> and then watching it again now, it's just like the the beauty of the episode structure and it, you know, changing gears from showing that that emotional toll on the soldiers that you're talking about. I mean, you know, we get we'll get into that little uh, the conversation at the little outpost uh, mm-hmm. before they find the the, um, the concentration camp, and one of the replacements gets yelled at O'Keefe as he's famously mis- misnamed or misreferenced. Um, just wants to see some action. He gets chided up, mm-hmm. about it, and there's just this pervasive feeling that the Tacoma men, in particular, are pretty strung out by this point. Oh yeah, and then. Within minutes of that, in terms of episode time, you see this total, total shift as they stumble upon the concentration camp.
0: Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. So but before we actually uh, dive into that, just to kind of go through who, um, who, who who built this episode for us, of course, we always give credit to Stephen Ambrose, who uh, wrote the book. John Orloff was our screenwriter. Uh, we know him from having written Day of Days, uh, which was another pretty deep episode. And this uh, episode was directed by David Frankel, who had also directed um, the episode The Breaking Point for us um, uh, just a a few episodes ago. So, uh, Tom, could you take us through our plot summary?
1: I I will say they they pair up the the writer and the director of two of the most emotional episodes in this whole series. I don't think that was accidental at all. Yeah, I agree. As this episode kicks off, we're in Thalem, Germany, April 11th, 1945. So we are very, very close to, to Victory VE Day or Victory Europe Day. Easy is taking a moment of R&R as German citizens dig through the rubble of their bombed out town. They're organizing materials while a string quartet plays a piece from Beethoven, uh, not Mozart, as Captain <laughs> Nixon so aptly points out. That's right. We then get a flashback by a month, and the 101st is in Germany still. Uh, they've got some men consorting and looting. Captain Nixon returns to, to headquarters after a combat jump that that seems to have gone a little wrong with the 17th Airborne. He's one of the few that made it out of his plane alive after it was hit, uh, and and the remaining paratroopers were were mostly killed, except for a couple men. Nixon is now drinking heavily and openly. Major Winters confronts him about it uh, and delivers the news that Colonel Sink has actually demoted him to Battalion S3. And for those of you who know the military out there, getting demoted from a higher staff level officer to a lower staff level officer, it's like, you know, run rung of or one circle of hell to another. <laughs> so the next day, Captain Nixon receives a letter from his wife who's leaving him. Uh, and to make matters worse, she's taken the dog. And the men ultimately learn that President Roosevelt has passed away. The 101st is then sent to Landsberg, which is about 65 kilometers west of Munich, to oversee the surrender of about 300,000 German soldiers. Upon arrival, they set up a battalion headquarters, and Major Winters sends patrols to scout the surrounding area. A patrol made up of Sergeants Randleman, Christensen, perconte, and Luz ultimately stumble upon a concentration camp at the edge of the forest surrounding the town. Bracante runs back to headquarters to notify Major Winters, who brings much of the company back with him to the concentration camp. The men see the absolute horrors of the camp. They're welcomed by the survivors who are in tears, emaciated, and abused, and and, and the men just can't believe what they're witnessing. Piles of emaciated dead are around the camp and stacked in railcars. Some men, barely alive, emerge from some of the huts. Uh, Liebgott ultimately translates for Major Winters as survivors tell them what happened. Most of the prisoners are simply there because they're Jewish. Major Winters ultimately sends word to Colonel Sink and sends men back to town to gather food uh, and water. In the middle of distributing the food, the battalion surgeon stops them, saying that this plan needs to be stopped and the food, monitor, food intake monitored due to this state of their starvation. Having no other place to put the former prisoners while they are fed and provided medical attention, Liebgott is ultimately ordered to tell them all that they need to go back inside the fences of the camp. The next day, people from Landsberg, who claimed they knew nothing of this camp, were brought to help carry out the dead. Captain Nixon's reassignment and demotion is withdrawn. That episode ends back where it started, with Captain Nixon telling the men that Hitler had committed suicide and that Easy has been ordered to Berchtesgaden. As I butchered all German names, <laughs> where a group of Waffen SS were hol- holding up at the Eagle's Nest.
0: Yeah, so that's actually probably our most lengthy uh, episode summary, and and like I said, like a lot happened, and it it almost felt there were certain things that that we kind of couldn't skip when we when we gave that because there were so many important components of this. And we're going to break down a lot of those components and and talk about them. Um, Our our, our key cast members here, a lot of our regulars um, that we had involved in this, uh, we we did have our new guy, as Tom mentioned earlier, uh, which was O'Keefe. And I think, uh, what, Percante kept calling him O'Malley or O'Brien? O'Brien, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Earlier in the episode uh, until uh, actually later on in the camp, when O'Keefe is just kind of sitting there almost catatonic from what he's seen uh Percante actually calls him O'Keefe which is a uh, you 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 realize i mean that that brings a little bit more levity to the moment that you know earlier on Percante was intentionally not calling him by his name um but here just the 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 gravity of the situation Um, you know, Percante did address them appropriately. So, so we did have a lot of things going on here. Uh, Early on, we saw some things happening, um, some actions by the allies, which were certainly less than, than, than legit. Um, Some of them were, yeah, I mean, we kind of varying degrees of wrong, I guess, um, as I mentioned, we, we saw some looting, uh, including uh, Spears just collecting silver or having <laughs> ha- actually having other people collect silver for him um, and going to the um, uh, to, to the APO that they had set up there and getting the stuff packaged up and shipped home. And of course, you know, Spears went very spears on the uh uh logistics guy when the when he mentioned oh hey you know your your family's going to have quite a collection <laughs>
1: <laughs> finders keepers
0: yeah yeah um so very clearly was not the first time that that spears had, had done
1: this yeah and i the i think they they chose this structure really intentionally because it shows just uh, the lack of discipline that's going on throughout the entire rank structure. And they've come into to Germany having fought their way in from the the edge of or the coastline of France, and these men are tired. They've been mm-hmm. fighting for for weeks and months on end. They just got done here uh, months ago with the Battle of the Bulge, and just a, a you know one grueling battle after another, and gears are starting to slip. I think if if you were to go on to a modern day battlefield today, I you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that some level of of looting doesn't exist, but it was illegal then and it's illegal now. Sure. And to see, you know, a company great officer doing it in, in Captain Spears, I think really encapsulates what was going on there. And I think it also shows how fed up the men were. With their enemy, and i mean, they are seeing the Germans as less than, not less than people, but well, you're, just, you're pretty uh, close. Yeah, you know, you guys don't deserve any of these things. We're the victors rolling into town. You guys started this. We're not just going to finish it, but we're going to take your shit while we're at it. Yeah. And, um, I, <laughs> on a side note, I love that the private that's running the post office has his own little like smuggling operation going oh, yeah. he, he's your go-to guy he's like <laughs> morgan freeman and shawshank redemption yes yeah like, gets you whatever you need yep um but yeah I, I i think it's the the looting itself is what i focused on when i first watched the episode but i watch it now and especially when you think about the episode as a whole it's they've lost sight of why they're there um yeah you know even a guy like spears who's really just a death dealer is is more concerned with <laughs> uh sending shit back home than uh than really anything else and and boy does that change in in just a few minutes
0: yeah well and, and yeah it's definitely interesting because in the last episode uh both instances when the men had to get briefed before they were to go out on their night operation Spears was in both instances standing behind winners, saying, "You want me to go brief the men? You want me to go brief them? You want me to go brief them?" I mean, like he was he was on this. Like I, I'm I'm ready to go tell them what military cool things they go they need to do. Yeah. And here he's just kind of you know walking around, and he's got people gathering stuff up for him, and he brings it to the APO, and he's like, "Hey, you got a box for this?" Yeah. Like total total change.
1: When visually, like visually, you see a difference too. You, you've you got, and it's not just, Spears doesn't have his helmet on. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, I don't even know that he carries a rifle in the episode. Yeah, um, good point. He just looks like a normal guy, whereas every other appearance that we've seen him, he's this just like Terminator of a soldier. Meanwhile, yeah. you've got Nixon who looks like just an absolute bag of ass walking around. Oh, um, yeah. You know, he's he's probably more visibly showing that the wear and tear than anybody. And then sort of on a related note, you've got Major Winners who looks very, very comfortable. And he's got a clean-pressed mm-hmm. uniform. He's got bracers mm-hmm. on. Uh, he's wearing his tie. And it's not really until the end of the episode that you see all that change. But Winters, you know, Winters snaps back into his old mode, Spears does to, to his, and, and all the men uh, kind of fall back into their... Uh, you know, their normal personas and, and snap out of this malaise that they're in. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And we're going to talk more about, uh, about Nixon in, in a little bit, but kind of along with the theme here of looting. And we, we see Nixon it, early in this episode. I mean, he's constantly looking for alcohol. Uh, He's, he's run out of um what the heck is it that he's drinking?
1: Vat 69. Yeah. Vat,
0: Vat 69. Um, Is that even, is that a thing? Is that legit or was that something they just made up for this? I don't. It
1: know. is. It's a. It's it's actually a Scotch blended whiskey. Okay. Um. So it's out of it's a it's a Scottish um a, a Scottish Scotch that that dates back to the eighteen hundreds. Hmm. Um. I don't know that it's. I can't tell how. I I've never heard of it outside of the episode. So I don't know if it's uh, considered a uh, a very expensive brand stateside. Yeah. He certainly I it it seems like it, it is to in the context that where Nixon is searching for, because he's not exactly going into like the low end homes to search no, for the bad 69. No. And he he picks through plenty of liquor collections <clears throat> and turns his nose up at quite a bit. That that you know otherwise looks pretty nice.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's a uh he's a discerning alcoholic. <laughs> apparently, at at least in this stage. Um but you know one night we do see him uh hit a measure of desperation he breaks into in the dark what he thinks is a liquor store but actually ends up being a pharmacy and uh so we we, we see a lot a lot of stuff going on with Nixon in this episode and he's really one of the the main focal points I would say Nixon and perconte are, are really the the two big focal points of, of this episode and yeah we'll we'll talk a little bit more about about Nixon in a bit uh, we also saw uh, Luz and, and, and Percante early on in the episode. They were in a uh, uh, in a chicken coop stealing some eggs. And then a, a, a German girl stumbles upon them and, and Luz uh, takes a fancy to her. I, I think he would have taken a fancy to her if she were a cow. <laughs> and uh, uh, that ends up happening off screen. But uh, it, 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 it goes on to essentially show that she ended up slugging him. <laughs> uh, good for her, and uh, you know he he ends up walking away with no further advances.
1: It had a creepy air to it when they're when they were actually in the the barn itself. Yeah, he, Luz is like, you know, why don't you go like beat it, like mind your own, like make your omelet. Yeah, did <laughs> <And like, laughs> a rape happen in this show, and I forgot about it completely. And like, fortunately, Luz is a better guy than that. He just takes his licking and walks on. So. Yeah,
0: yep, yep. <laughs> Um, we, we do see as um, it, as the 101st is, is moving from one place to another um, in some trucks on, on the side of the road, they uh, end up passing some small house or some small structure where some German soldiers are, are ushered out by some French soldiers who uh, order the Germans on their knees and assassinate them right then and there. That that's certainly the uh, epitome of the illegal actions that we see here, and I, I, I mean, obviously, it's 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 not right. <laughs> um, and we we've talked before in earlier episodes about some of these things, which can even range into things that we could call, you know, war crimes or, or atrocities. And 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 it's certainly not it's certainly not right. But to an extent, you can understand. The mentality of the people who committed these things, and we're not justifying it, but you can understand where they're coming from.
1: It reminded me. Well, the the thing that struck me when when that happens is that's really O'Malley's first taste. He had he was just coming. er, or (laughs) O'Keefe (laughs) jeez Now you've got me confused. Yeah, but he he is just coming off of his little spat with Precante, where he's he's getting lectured on. Like why he needs to shut the hell up about wanting to see actual combat, yep. and then as they're driving, he sees a pretty raw side of it, and I, what it evoked for me. Obviously, they don't focus too much on the French soldiers, but it evoked that scene in Saving Private Ryan right after they take the beachhead and they're taking German prisoners, <clears throat> and they some POWs are being ushered out of a pillbox and. I, they shoot a few of them and they're one of, I f- I forget all the characters names off the top of my head, except Tom Hanks. But one of them like, what did he, what did the Germans say? And he's like, look, my washed my hands. And they're just making light of it. Yeah. But you know, there's <clears throat> an underlying current of just like absolute frustration. Those guys having just got done with a, like a really vicious battle and mm-hmm. the French soldiers coming out of like being under the German boot heel. Yeah. Uh, somewhat to their own government's fault, at least the, the Vichy <laughs> government, but, yeah. In any event, With I, much of their you,
0: country being occupied. So, oh
1: yeah, absolutely. I, you know, then
0: I, twice within a couple decades,
1: yeah, by the same country. And so <laughs> yeah. you could see, I, you know, you when when Tim says you can understand where they're coming from a little bit, I th- I think you can under, maybe not fully relate to it, but you can sense that that frustration that's coming historically that yeah like those soldiers are probably feeling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we saw. So part of, of Nixon nosing around for some booze uh, ends up going into, as as Tom said, one of his stops uh, actually ends up being the home of a German officer who, who of course, wasn't there because he was out, you know, being a German officer. Uh, but um, clearly his wife was home. And uh, it, it's an interesting scene because not a word is said by either one of them. Nixon's in there rooting around, he sees the picture of the officer, he, he knocks it onto the floor and it breaks. He's looking through some other papers. And even though he's looking through some papers, you can just kind of tell he's really looking for a bottle. Yeah. You know, I, I mean it it's just kind of one of those things that's that's pretty obvious. I mean, yeah, he might be casually looking for some intel. He is, after all, an an Intel officer. But I really think the real reason why he's there is because he's looking for a bottle and uh, so the the officer's wife comes around the corner and locks eyes with him and she will she stares him right down to the point that you know of course the the irony of it is that he is the uh he's an officer of the occupying army and he puts his head down and walks away with his tail between his legs i mean truly leave, leaves the house completely without taking anything um, and you know, she just totally stares, stares him down.
1: This is one of those great, great moments. You get that payoff at the end with her, but you yeah. see him, he's in this like very nice home. He's all disheveled. He looks like he just stole the uniform as an impersonating an officer, <laughs> but she's very clean cut and well <laughs> to do. He has, he has sullied her house by not like literally the only thing out of place is him being in there. And then the smashed photograph of her husband. By the way, um, if you're an officer out there, all of us should absolutely have a picture like he did of you in full military uniform, <laughs> dress uniform, with just you in it, like a, <laughs> If you don't have one of those in your home, what are you doing? <laughs> so, but anyways, yeah. I, you know it's it's a really really great <laughs> visual moment where you, you don't even need a, a bit of dialogue. You don't need her to come down the stairs and scream or like sick that little dog on him or him to say, I'm sorry, or like, fuck you, you're, you know, you're Nazi scum, whatever the case may be that stare that she gives him. And then the stare that he returns to her at the end of the episode is like beautiful storytelling. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it really is. So a lot of this is, um, a lot of what we see through this episode is, so much of really like what you mentioned a lot of real interesting and, and very a lot of finesse in the storytelling of the 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 men of Easy Company and I think is a reflection of uh, the allied military as a whole and their attitude or their ability to discern between a German and a Nazi. And because in so many ways, that really is an undertone of a lot of the interactions that occur in this episode. And and you know, there definitely is a difference. I mean, they 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 enter Germany as the conquerors, but to the townspeople. They weren't really conquerors, I mean the townspeople weren't putting up a fight. um The townspeople lived in fear under the Nazis, and now they're also in many ways living in fear because now there's an occupying army who hates everything that has to do with their country because of what their country's leadership has done,
1: yeah, you see multiple interactions where um you know the the baker comes to mind as they're mm-hmm. yeah. rating his shop for for food, and some of the citizens as they move into that town and are are quartering themselves in the homes, you hear repeatedly the the German words for I'm not I'm, we're no Nazis or I'm not yeah. a Nazi, yeah. and the Americans they just don't care. I mean, at this point, it's it's all ubiquitous. You live in this country, you have operated in some level of comfort under the rule of, of the Nazi party. So um, <laughs> the average U S army private uh, is not going to give a damn uh, about what your political affiliation is. Yeah.
0: And and it's an interesting thing. Um, as, as folks know, I was just, uh, I was in Germany a couple months ago and um, in, in speaking to a lot of the folks in and around Munich, they are just now and we're what 70 years later they're really just now kind of coming to grips with the fact that the allied army was a liberator they've had they've had a lot of difficulty putting a label on that and understandably so i mean they were they were liberated from their own country which is just kind of an odd concept um, but when you have a fascist tyrant as a leader, yeah I mean you 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 do need to be liberated, you need to be saved. so it's an interesting terminology that that comes from from German folks now as they're looking back on things reflectively and and understanding that yeah they they were in fact liberated and and they're celebrating that liberation and it's an interesting attitude there now because. For a, a very long time, they put this whole era into a box and put that box in the deepest depths of the ocean where no <laughs> one could find it. Um, they, like, refused to acknowledge it. They wouldn't talk about it. And still, in a lot of ways, it's very hush-hush. And, of course, I mean, doing anything like uh, throwing a Nazi salute or anything like that is actually illegal in Germany. You, that will land you in jail. 100% no questions asked. Um, so, but, but they're, they're, the way that they talk about it, um, or sometimes talk around it, they're they're still not quite there where they need to be. I, I mean, you know, he, here in the US, we can say, hey, slavery was freaking horrible and we should never do that again. And in Germany, they're like, so there was this guy. Um, I, I mean, it's and, and and they like they acknowledge that it's horrible, but their ability to talk about it and have an open dialogue about it seems to be a, a, a challenge for them as an as a nation and, and as a people. And that is it's very interesting to see. It's a little frustrating, but then you can also understand it. I mean, it's it's tough to. It's a very difficult thing to get at. Um, and of course, like all all symbols of the Third Reich have been erased from within the country. Um, it, it's illegal for anyone except uh, essentially a museum to own or display any of those symbols. So, I mean, they have – it's an interesting thing where, you know, just like us, they have a freedom of speech, except they have a list of exceptions. <laughs> and. Um, and actually my wife and i had a very interesting dialogue about it because she's like wow well that that then it's not a freedom of speech i'm like well it is but um and and so that's just it's very interesting it's very interesting so yeah i mean getting back to this episode we 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 saw i i think a, a lot of the the characters a lot of the the, the soldiers here struggling with differentiating not only physically like you know this person in front of me are they a german or a nazi but more on a broader sense socially accepting the fact that okay the people who live in this town who are children and women and 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 old men and bakers and whatever they're germans and probably had little to nothing to do with this regime, which has been waging war and killing and, and, and doing all these other things.
1: You see that some, the, the choice of interview clips at the beginning was really great because yeah. you hear a lot of the men talk about the exact points that you're making. Uh, the, the quote that comes to my mind, one of the soldiers is like, It's just a real down-home Southern guy, you know, old man at this point. But he's like, you know, these guys could have been my friends. We could have had a lot in common. They could have loved fishing and hunting. Uh, We could have done all those things together. And they were just doing their job. And unfortunately for them, you know, the reality of the the situation wasn't all that clear. That the professional German army that existed long before the Third Reich took over and, and took control um, really at its core had a lot of officers and soldiers that were just that they're professionals just like our mm-hmm. our armed forces are yeah. and they're doing a they job nec- yeah they, and they don't necessarily espouse the the views of the fuhrer or anything like that they're you know they're they're in service to their country and mm-hmm. um it, that doesn't necessarily equate with an endorsement of uh, what's going on at the top or what the SS was doing, what was going on with uh, the Jewish population or, or the minority population. But one point I wanted to make, and I'll, I will keep this very brief because I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but you see in this episode how easy it is to slip into to doing things that are uh, very questionable when mm-hmm. you start viewing people as less than or less than human. Certainly on one extreme, you've got the Nazis and, and what happened with the final solution. I mean, that's uh, that's as bad as it gets. But you see it intentionally shown to you uh, at the beginning of the episode that it's easy for these soldiers, American soldiers, these these heroes that we've watched for nine episodes now who have done all these great things, to do actions or to treat others in ways that it's not on the same end of the spectrum by by any means, but it is on that spectrum. When you start to view others with that kind of disdain and uh, this us-versus-them mentality, when you start to reduce everybody to a label, especially a, a despicable label, a murderer, a rapist, a Nazi, all these things, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that um, you're talking to a human being. Uh, yeah. And that's just as relevant today as it was in, in 1940, in the 1940s. And keep in mind, you know, people like to, to say, you know, that that could never happen. Like Germany is such, and the Nazi party is such a, an extreme example that would never happen. There are people that, that, you know, somehow mentally justify the conclusion that it didn't happen. Oh yeah. But, keep in mind, if, if you're a student of history, <clears throat> Germany was not a third world country. This was not an Afghanistan. This was not some backwards society that had never, uh, you know, interacted with with first world uh, countries or peoples. This was one of the most advanced societies in the world at that time. Mm-hmm. Certainly they had some unique circumstances coming out of World War I, but this was, uh, you know, an industrial country that was on par with uh, many of the other countries in europe certainly the the scale and professionalism and skill of their military was on par if if not exceeding our own military at at certain points in the war and you see the slope that they slid down and it didn't happen overnight it happened over a number of years um, and it started with actions on the other end of the scale um, with with the conditioning and the treatment uh, and the thinking that certain folks within Germany or within Europe were less than or were not worth as much as uh, you know a certain race or a certain class of people, and so I just I don't want to turn this political, but I think this episode is is probably the most poignant pe- point to make a an example of that because at the end, and we'll get into talk of the concentration camp at the min- in a minute, but when they're trying to figure out who these people are and what this camp is for, the the uh, Jewish prisoner that that is talking to Liebgott and Major Winners says that they're the unwanted. Mm-hmm. He doesn't immediately start out and say, oh, we're Jews, so we were kept here, right? right? He says we're the unwanted. That's the kind of conditioning that comes from years of, you know, leadership in that country talking about... Uh, Jews and and the rest of the minorities, whether it be gypsies or otherwise, mm-hmm. as less than, yeah. less than you know, natural born Germans and and whatnot. And that brand of uh supremacist attitude doesn't always come with a swastika branded on it. It doesn't always come with a skinhead or uh you know some of these other ubiquitous symbols. Right. And it can be very insid very insidious and and very very veiled at times. But that's what it ultimately can lead to. So that's all I'll say on the matter, but we'll get back to Banner Brothers now.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, but, well, and you know, I mean, it. the thing is, it's all very relevant. And I think that this is, <laughs> with how this episode was constructed, it leads us to all these different discussions that are associated to what's being shown to us in the episode. And you can go down all these different paths. Um, because it's just all hugely relevant. So um, we, we mentioned earlier some, some things going on with Captain Nixon. Uh, in the plot summary, we talked about this combat jump that he did with the, the 17th Airborne. And uh, yeah, the, the, the plane got shot down uh, right after he jumped. So only he and, and, and a handful of others actually survived uh, the jump. Everyone else died in the plane. Uh Being the senior surviving officer on that detail, he was tasked with writing the letters back home uh to families and that was weighing on him quite a bit.
1: Nixon had a real shitty episode. we can just put it that
0: way <laughs> yeah he he, he he really did and and he kind of he does this big dump in this scene with winters where he talks about this and what happened and you know, it's the <laughs> – first of all, I think having to do the combat jump is something he didn't want to do. Yeah. And, and then with what happened during that combat jump, obviously that weighs on him. And particularly in a situation where the fighting itself has decreased so much that, holy shit, the plane gets hit and all these guys die. You know, th- this this was not a um, I mean, they're they're calling it a combat jump. I, I don't know that he was jumping into a combat zone, though. Um, it would have seemed odd to put him with someone else. I, I I Tom, is there anything you can from a military structure perspective that.
1: I It, it may have been just a tasking because he was not expendable in like a living sense. Like, Oh, Captain Nixon can afford to die, but just, you know, Hey, this is an officer who's not essential to our staff functions. We can part him out to, to go on this other mission. So it may be reflective of the larger problems that he's having within the division staff. Um, He just keeps the, the the hits keep on coming to him in this episode. Um, You know, he goes on that jump, I think he's harboring a ton of guilt mm-hmm. for a number of things, and not all of it's rational. He's harboring guilt over not having fired his weapon in combat, mm-hmm. and you you talk about the epitome of illogical. He's jumped into Normandy. He's been in battle after battle, just like living right alongside the men. It's not as if he's in some cushy headquarters somewhere. Really, ultimately, the fact that he hasn't pulled his trigger is irrelevant as far as his own sacrifice is gone. He's been there and and, and lived it just like the rest of them for the most part. But yet he's fixating on this uh, this metric that. And you see, winners, winners is surprised. Oh yeah, just by he's like, of the fact that they've been in a lot of combat. He's like
0: really, not not once.
1: <laughs> nope. But it doesn't bother. I mean, like winners <laughs> doesn't give a shit. He's like, okay, well, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah but then I I think he's, he's sitting there in frustration with winners. Who's not only advanced his own career and who is sort of the, the golden child that he'll never be. Um, but winners knows all of his secrets. And I think he recognizes that winners is seeing his, his spiral and that frustrates him even more. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's now found himself. He's bitching about, I say bitching. I don't mean to, to say it lightly. He's he's bitching about having to write letters home to to some folks from that uh, that aircraft, and he's complaining about that to Winners, who's written how many letters home, sure. right? Sure. And he gets angry at Winners because he's like, "Oh, I, I'm really sorry. That's a, a damn shame that you lost those men." And he his reaction to Winners is almost one of like, "You you don't get it anymore. You've lost touch." Yeah. Yeah. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. And I think it's just a, you know, an anger from winner's status versus his status, and a recognition internally that he's he's lost control of himself. Oh sure. Well, and these
0: and guys have had a a very. Um, they clearly have a friendship. They have a mutually supportive professional relationship, where you, you know. Nixon, I think, took better to being an officer than Winters did. Winters was good at being a junior officer, mm-hmm. but when he had to get further detached from the men and he had to deal with the administrative stuff, Nixon's like, oh yeah, this, that's easy. Here's how to write a report. Here's how to do this. Here's how to do that. <laughs> Nixon was very good with that particular role in that measure of, of detachment. And and, and, you know, likewise, winners looked out for Nixon. They worked well together. They had this really great relationship And, and, and they still do. But what we see in this episode is very clearly we see a lot of symptoms of Nixon's alcoholism and the underlying mental health issues. And then, like you said, this is just a shitty episode for Nixon because it just keeps piling on top of him. You know, I mean, it's it's for as silly as it seems, him running out of booze is a big freaking deal, um, particularly to someone who is a professional day drinker. And, and <laughs> well, and the guy can function very, very well doing it, um, apparently maybe not so well because even Winner's... Kind of has this little like half a line in his statement to Nixon when he says, you know, "Was you maybe this is a reason why Colonel Sink isn't happy. <laughs> you know, and whether he's actually been not doing his job because of the alcohol or not doing his job because of other mental health issues or a combination of the two. Nonetheless, this is something that happened. Um then, you know, Nixon gets the punch in the gut with the letter from his wife saying that she's going to leave him. She's taking everything, including the dog, which apparently she never even liked. And, and you know, obviously, that's that's a big thing. And, and you know, Tom, for you, having been deployed, I mean, you may very well have been around guys who got those letters from home
1: yeah the what did they call it in the earlier episode a dear babe letter yeah yeah <laughs> he got his, yeah you got his dear John letter, and that can be especially devastating and I for Nixon you see this frustration because they had gotten comfortable in this town and now they're on the move again mm-hmm. and it's clear that all he wants to do is wallow in like wallow in place yeah. if we can make that a military term now yeah. <laughs> just w i p just whip it and he can't do because all of a sudden 300,000 Germans surrender and they've got to move deeper into Germany. And like, damn it. I was just getting into raiding this town for, for some more booze. Can we just have a minute? Yeah. And as the entire force is moving around them, trucks are rolling and whatnot. He takes his, his tin can off and just smashes it down. And it, it blows up about the dog of all things.
0: Well, and you he know, doesn't and, even have the opportunity to like sit and vent over no. this letter with someone. Or to have a drink over it because it's like all of a sudden, hey, we're we're moving, we're going. You need to find a jeep and go.
1: Yeah, well, less than twelve <laughs> hours before he gets demoted, and then uh, he's he realizes that they're moving out, and he's not going to be able to get the booze that he wants to get. And then all of a sudden, he's ripping the letter out right as he's walking outside. I, I can only imagine what that's like it's devastating in a vacuum but for somebody who's suffering alcoholism in a combat zone it's there are reasons i've talked about this before but there are reasons why modern day they they have strict rules against no drinking and stuff like that it's Mm -hmm. because this this kind of stuff happens all the time yeah i guarantee you it happened today to a soldier sure as sad as that is to think about sure uh but that Vat 69 is the kerosene that that he's throwing on his fire repeatedly. Um, Yeah. And I think fortunately for him, the, the sort of sober up moment comes as they discover this camp.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, At at least temporarily, at Mm, least temporarily. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Stand by for the next episode. (laughs) <laughs> um, where he gets escorted into the Mecca of alcohol in Bavaria. Um, <laughs> Hitler, the enabler. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, th- these, these, you know, getting this kind of letter, having this breakup, um, you know, a, a divorce, I mean, the kind of the ultimate breakup and being in a war zone and not being able to do anything about it. I mean, you can't even have right. a conversation. You can't, you can't pick up the phone there's yeah. no
1: there's no Skype obviously FaceTime yeah
0: so i mean that that makes it even worse and kind of that more of a feeling of desperation because there's you you simply can't do anything about it and then yeah as you said he gets refocused on on the things happening right in front of him um can you tom can you tell us about so winters gives him this news about this this demotion now he he's he's it's a demotion in a job role sense but he's not he's still going to be a captain, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, it, so then and now officers cannot be demoted. You can be kicked out but unlike an enlisted soldier that can be dropped in rank, you you can't be demoted. Uh, so unfortunately, the Last Jedi is is not too accurate in that sense. But <laughs> what you can be is is stripped of authority, stripped of your position, basically neutered in mm-hmm. a professional sense, and that's uh, what essentially happens to him here. This isn't the wor- to be clear, getting demoted from one echelon to another and to a different staff officer position is not probably the end of his career, but it's. It, certainly doesn't help anything and for a guy that's that's already struggling with a lot of stuff this is no good so s3 and this is front-loading a little bit of our military lingo it's a staff section among other staff sessions throughout the war nixon has been what we would call an s2 an intelligence officer you see him again and again dealing with uh reports that they gather, information that they're collecting on the battlefield, trying to discern and predict enemy movements, um, sifting through uh, stuff that's been collected. A great example of that is, is in the Day of Days. We talked about that earlier, when Winters captures uh, some of those maps from one of the artillery emplacements. And they go right to Nixon. Nixon helps process them, and they realize that those are most of the, a map of most of the German gun emplacements along normandy so that was his 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 job and and he was working at a different echelon before he got demoted here but now s3 is one of the the five or six traditional staff sections they're all just s1 s2 s3 s4 s5 s6 Mm -hmm. but s3 relates to military operations so this is like the planning staff uh this is a a group that's gonna take together sort of all the intelligence that's been processed and plan out what their moves are. So, for example, as they're moving from one town to another, S3 is going to be involved in, in shaping how that operation actually happens. They might, you know, that S3 officer, uh, among others, and might be directing how they're going to set up shop and, and conduct operations once they get to the next town, whether that's patrols, that sort of thing. So it's for for Nixon. It's not in his wheelhouse. It, it's in his wheelhouse generally as an officer, but he's being stripped of doing something that he was doing before that that he's trained to do as an intelligence officer. So that's a slap in the face. And then um, he's not working for a regiment anymore. So he's been bounced down an echelon down to battalion. So that's that's also a hit as well because he's got less responsibility now. Good. Thank you. Whether he cares or not, it was hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was hard to tell for major winners <clears> too.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Winters winners had to actually say, dude, you're you're being demoted. <laughs> like like this isn't this isn't a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So but then really all of that gets shelved as um the focus of the episode switches over to the concentration camp. And um so to to let everyone know, they, they were in um what was the name of this town again? Uh, Landsberg. And Landsberg is uh, just a bit west of Munich. There is a, you know, folks have probably heard of a handful of different concentration camps. There are actually thousands um, all around basically the all the areas that were occupied um, by the Nazi forces they set up concentration camps and a lot of these were like networks of concentration camps. So there would be uh, like one larger centralized camp in an area and then there would be smaller camps around it. And um, the purposes of those camps could be very different. I mean, it could be like the difference between like what we would have in our prison system of maximum security, medium security, minimum security, um, Obviously, the Nazis were very big on segregation, so they may have certain camps that were just for Jews and certain camps just for Poles and for gypsies and for homosexuals and for prisoners of war and and, and that kind of stuff. So they they may segregate them out by that. Uh, They had certain camps that were set up in areas specifically um, as labor camps to do certain things. And so uh, the name of, of this camp is actually kind of a collection of camps. That was highlighted in this episode is called uh, Kufring, and there were actually eleven camps that were kind of part of what they call the the Kufring complex. And the Kufring complex was actually part of um, it was a subsidiary complex of Dachau. Uh, Dachau was the main camp in that particular area, that Munich area of, of Germany. The Kufring complex, the purpose of it was to engage prisoners in building a fighter plane factory um, in the area. And there were others that were um, uh, parts of the other complex that were engaged in, in digging out bunkers and that kind of stuff. So they used a lot of prisoners to, to actually, you know, as, as laborers to, to do things. The story that's here in this episode is actually a, a bit of an alteration of of facts, so that's why the 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 show itself, the series itself, is, is is regarded as as historical fiction. And and you know Ambrose admitted himself that well, I really combined these two people into this one person, or I changed the order of these particular events because, from a literary perspective, even though his focus was still on telling the tale of the soldiers and being as historically accurate as he could be, you know, he made some changes and then further changes. His stuff was mostly accurate, but then further changes were made when they did the the screenplays of this because they needed something that could be told better and more attractively in this particular medium. So uh, the camp here, uh, this, this particular Kofran camp, was actually liberated by the 134th uh, Ordnance Maintenance Battalion, which is part of the 12th Armored Division. The 101st came in the day after, so they were still there. That's that that is still absolutely relevant and factual. But they were not the ones who actually uh, found the camp itself. Now, the camp itself, uh, kind of going back to the story, had a significant impact on the men. I mean, as as I think any of us would imagine. This was just overwhelming and jaw-dropping. I, I, I mean, I... And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about about it more in a bit, but when I was in Germany a couple months ago, I toured Dachau, and I was overwhelmed by it, and that's without seeing a bunch of malnourished and dead prisoners. I, I, I mean, I can't imagine what these soldiers saw. Um, and in fact, all their senses. I mean, it's the, the, there was a significant smell coming from the camp um, of rotting bodies, burnt bodies, sewage, etc. And it just, I mean, this is the most sobering part of this episode. I mean, I, I've seen this episode easily half a dozen times. And every single time this particular episode, uh, the 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 third act is the one that just puts a lot of shit in perspective.
1: And they actually, in, in looking at stuff behind the scenes, they coordinated Tom Hanks and Spielberg with a, a pretty famous German Holocaust researcher. And they actually built the camp, the set, to spec. Yeah. And if you're wondering as you look, you know, why are these buildings half in the ground and whatnot? the Germans wanted to avoid detection for some of these camps. Mm-hmm. They wanted to uh, fool aerial reconnaissance and whatnot. What is really interesting, if you think about it is as f- the average U S soldier is there, they're coming up on this stuff. They don't know that this sort of thing is going on. Even a guy as smart and, and as well as, as well informed as major winners mm-hmm. has no clue that this sort of thing is happening. Maybe there are rumblings, uh, maybe there are some reports that they've seen, uh, but by and large, they're an army fighting another army and, and they're not aware of what's going on. And and to the extent that, you know, they know the SS plays some special role and, and are a special brand of evil, but I don't think anybody had any clue within those ranks of what was really going on. And I think that makes the moment where they find and then explore this camp and interact with the prisoners that much more poignant. And it really crystallizes the the change that happens for a lot of these men. This, they're literally as they the patrol comes up through the woods. It starts off and their babe is just joking. Uh, some of them, I don't even think Luz Luz may not even have his helmet on. Uh, they're not walking at the ready with their weapons, with the exception of O'Malley, or Uh take your pick. um they're just generally not taking it all that seriously and then the cinematography as they come up on the camp you don't see the camp they don't reveal it right away you see a a wide shot of the patrol strung out just staring yeah and then it quick cuts to mcante sprinting outright and this is a guy who had just gone off on another soldier about you know, finally getting some nicer things, a warm shower, some toilet paper, food, that sort of thing. And, and he's enjoying the nicer side of war, so to speak. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he's right back into his old mode, sprinting to try to find major winners, back in that NCO mode to to get help down there. Yeah. And when they finally do reveal it, it's just a really emotionally powerful moment. Winners comes up, and the camera's kind of focused on him. Babe is not even... Like looking at the camp, he's just crouched down, facing away from the prisoners.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these guys are just very easily overwhelmed by this. Um, and like you said, it focuses on, on winners as he orders them to to open up the gates to the camp and to go in. And the camera pans around, essentially, as Winner's eyes. And so you're taking in everything that he's taking in. And it's an absolutely horrific scene. You know, a couple minutes into this, uh, one of the prisoners comes up to him and speaking German. So he gets Liebgott to, uh, to, to come up and translate for him. And this weighs pretty heavily on Liebgott, who, who is Jewish and is kind of forced to be front and center with this whole thing and, and to interact with these men and to be told to not only be told firsthand of what happened, but then to have to tell it himself as, as he's translating and, and that weighs early on very heavily on him. And then as we mentioned in the the summary for this, uh, once the, the battalion surgeon arrives and says, well, no, you can't just shove food into these into these people's stomachs. It's they're they're in a state of starvation and they have to actually be slowly fed because it could kill them. And so Winners then turns to got and says, You gotta tell them, you know, no more food, and you have to tell them to all go back in. And and I mean that's absolutely heartbreaking. And and, and even Colonel Sink who's uh, I mean you kind of never see emotion from Colonel Sink at all and even he says this is a horrible thing but we have to do it. I mean your your heart just drops further in in dealing with this. So yeah, you know everything done with this I, from from a a directing perspective was obviously absolutely brilliant. The cinematography was incredible and it showed the horrors of it, I mean, you know, the, the the dead bodies lying around, the piles of them, they open up the train car and, and there's there's dead bodies in there. The one prisoner who told Lieb got well, before the guards left, they burned some of the huts and those huts had people in them and those people burned alive. And right. then they used whatever ammunition they had to kill people before they left
1: they didn't have enough to, to kill everybody. So they did what they could yeah, and then fled. Yeah. It's no mistake with, with God. Cause his, his story kind of comes front and center with this as you're talking about. It's no mistake that on the way into town, they have uh, a, him telling a, a story, sort of predicting what he's going to do when he gets back home. And he talks about marrying a, a nice Jewish girl, uh, just a subtle reminder mm-hmm. that, that he's Jewish as well. Just, Kind of prepping you mentally for what's about to come. Uh, and then unfortunately, not only is he the only soldier that can speak German, but he's got, you know, a cultural bond to the folks that they're helping liberate. And it just really weighs on him. I mean, it, this is a guy who's cracking wise or just kind of an irascible asshole for a lot of the episodes. Mm-hmm. And to see him standing up there on the back of the deuce and a half and, and, delivering the news that the prisoners are going to have to go back into the camp and stop eating as they figure it out. I mean, he just kind of collapses down and starts crying. I teared up as I was watching it. And you're talking about a, such a short scene with so much power in it. Um, and I think for the men, you really see it, particularly the the folks that were focused on earlier in the episode, Percante, uh, a lot of these Toccoa men that have been along f- for a while, you see this dawning that this this newfound resolve as they realize the true depth of the evil that they're they're facing down here. The uh, the other thing that was was clear to me was how quickly they all come together as well. You've got a, a bunch of folks that are all on different pages as this episode goes along. Winters is doing his thing. Nixon is is obviously in his own spiral. You've got some of the longer longer serving guys in easy that are just trying to enjoy themselves. You've got guys like uh, O'Keefe O'Malley just trying to see some action and almost immediately they, they unify in this purpose to help these people that, that they don't know, complete strangers. And, as they get ready to saddle up and head to the Eagle's Nest, um, it, there's this sense of purpose that doesn't exist at the at the start of the episode, at the start of the flashback, at least. And so you you really sense that they're ready to to deliver the haymaker that's going to put Germany out for the rest of the war. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and this episode really sets up a lot of a lot of purpose for that. And gives a good state of of where the German army is. I mean, especially with kind of in their closer saying that when Nixon says, "Yeah, hey, you know, Hitler committed suicide," and of course, everyone's first reaction is they look at each other and they're like, "So we're we're good? We, we can <laughs> we're we're done? We're done now?" Um, but no, I mean, there's there's pockets of 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 his loyalists and extremists that are still holding out, and they mentioned you know. Basically, that they're just going to kind of get into this guerrilla warfare kind of thing. And, um,
1: how, how subtly happy did captain Spears seem when he's describing the fact that the SS had gotten orders to initiate a guerrilla warfare and they're headed right (laughs) into the thick of it. (laughs) I got my silver sent out. If I make it home to that, that's cool. But right now we're going to go knock some teeth out.
0: You know, and it's funny (laughs) because I can imagine Spears, Fast forward a few decades and stick him into like the movie Platoon. (laughs) Same character, same exact character. He'd be totally good, you know, bandana around his head, put him in a jungle. He's, he's good to go. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you know, there's, there's with how this closes up. It's really interesting. And I'll tell you one of the things that kind of gets me, the most and it's a thing that i i think has stuck out to me from the very first time i saw this episode and every single time i see the episode it always sticks out to me uh when perconte is is walking through the camp and one of the prisoners comes out of the hut sees him and salutes him mm-hmm. and perconte salutes him back like, like to me that's very very meaningful yeah there's there's a respect there from that prisoner and it's great that, you know, Perconte returns a salute and like you can, that that's a moment where from a viewer's perspective, you're like, okay, you know, these prisoners now know that, that they're going to be taken care of and that things are going to be okay. Um, and even though we saw much more emotional things, we saw prisoners running up and hugging the soldiers and 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 kissing them on the cheeks and saying thank you and and having so much gratitude, that one thing, and I don't know why in particular, that just stands out to me very much. And then you know then we go into the next day where the uh townsfolk <clears throat> were were brought in to help clean up the camp and remove uh-huh. the, the dead and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you see townsfolk who are kind of catatonic in doing it. You see, you know, there was a man who just stood there and sobbed while he was dragging dead bodies. Um, as you mentioned, we saw the uh, the German officer's wife that Nixon encountered in the beginning of the episode. And you 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 saw the exact opposite exchange, you know she looks up and she sees yeah. Nixon and then very quickly just drops her eyes, yeah, and you know she she lost the smugness that she once had and and I'm sure that she's gotta if she didn't know about the camp at this point, she's gotta know that, hey, my husband probably knew about this,
1: yeah. And it's a total flip from visually from what we saw earlier, where she's in the middle of her clean home. Now she's in the middle of a pit with a bunch of bodies yeah. and Nixon's the one who's a little more clean shaven and, and looking down on her. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very, there's a lot of irony with that. It's very interesting. So this, this camp, um, culfering is it, it no longer exists. Um, I mean, first of all, obviously, as, as you saw, there wasn't a whole lot of infrastructure there anyway. Um, and these these truly were huts, as, as Tom mentioned. I mean, they, they were built to evade detection. So they were low profile, so they wouldn't cast much of a shadow. Uh, they were intended to really not look like buildings. So the roofs were, you know, look like basically straw and thatch covered roofs. Um so those things don't exist uh in fact, there are very few camps that that still do exist um which are established as memorials and reminders and bits of of, of education uh you know kind of like a like a museum type of fashion and uh go, going through through dachau was uh was a very sobering thing it was um it, it's it was huge. First of all, the, the the size of the camp was incredibly huge, and and the camp itself, the the prison camp component of Dachau, uh, was actually only a fraction, like maybe a, a fifth or a sixth, of a much larger um, encampment, which was really more akin to like a military base. Wow. Uh, there were a bunch of administrative buildings because Dachau and Dachau was actually um, basically the first real concentration camp. And so it was established as a model camp. So they also did a lot of training there for the, the people who would be commandants and other leadership of, again, these thousands of other camps around the third Reich. Um, so they had training grounds there. They had a, they had barracks for SS soldiers. They had a training area for, for SS soldiers uh, there were some factories, they, the, the Germans liked to have their camps be productive, so they oftentimes had factories and such associated with them um, and other things. Uh, Dachau was not a death camp um, like others were, although that's not to say obviously people didn't die here. They certainly died of, of quote, natural causes, although those natural causes were generally forced. Um, or, or at least not helped, they had little to no medical care in the camp. Uh, usually the, only, the, the best medical care that they had were uh, prisoners who happened to have medical training. And if they were allowed to provide uh, some medical assistance and if they were provided with any kind of supplies uh, by the commandant, they, they were able to, to use them. Um, there were some really unfortunate things. Well, everything in Dachau was unfortunate. Uh, but in terms of, of the uh, uh, medical care or lack thereof, there was uh, one Austrian doctor who was actually a um, uh, he was actually a prisoner there. He was there as a political prisoner and he was ordered and seemed very willing uh, to do certain experiments on prisoners on behalf of the Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe wanted to see. I, I believe their experiments had to deal with um, pressurization, because since Luftwaffe was uh, the the essentially the, the air force of the Third Reich, uh, they wanted to um, uh, see how changes in, in in air pressure and such would affect the human body. And they had some other human experiments that uh, dozens of of prisoners died and actually continued to be subject uh, subjected to those experiments even after the Luftwaffe said, okay, we're good. You, you gave us results that we were looking for. And this guy was allowed to continue um, okay. doing these things. Um, they had, most camps had crematoriums um, as a way of getting rid of their dead. Um, but as has been, told uh you know these chambers were also used to to simply kill people um they did have a gas chamber there which uh apparently wasn't used much um i mean using it some is enough um but uh, so it was very interesting walking through these things and you know of course they had placards that showed they talked about how they were used and what they were used for and, and and such um the the barracks that were there uh, in Dachau were very similar to if you've seen something like the Great Escape or uh, quite honestly even Hogan's Heroes. Uh, the the barracks that they had there for the prisoners were were very similar to that. They were like long houses, um, all built out of wood. They were raised from from the ground um, a, a little bit, and um, There were, even though it was a prison camp, there were uh, isolation cells within that prison camp. Um, Again, in Great Escape, you saw those when uh, people were sent to uh, what was called the cooler. Um, So these were single occupancy isolation cells, um, like a hot meal every three days, either a small window or no window kind of a thing just uh i mean the whole thing was very heartbreaking there's a lot of memorials that were set up there um but there's a lot that they do there to explain the history and the use and the purpose and the atrocities and even though i mentioned earlier there there are a lot of aspects of german society which are struggling with how to relate these things. Um, the places that are set up as memorials and museums are very much 100% upfront about what happened um, in in these places and how absolutely freaking horrible they were. It, 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 was, it was pretty incredible. So uh, I, I would certainly encourage anyone who, I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's not a, hey, this is going to be a great, fun highlight of our trip. Um, and unfortunately my wife and I, uh, did our tour of Dachau on our last day in Germany. So it was <laughs> like, Hey, we had all this great fun for two weeks. And then on the last day we do like the, the most depressing thing possible before we go home.
1: Let's go. Um, home.
0: yeah, but it, it, it's absolutely worth, I, I, I think it's, it's worth seeing, um, from From the perspective of this is stuff that can't ever happen again. Um, and, you know, if, if you're interested at all in any of this history, which I imagine you must be if you're listening to this podcast, um, if you're not, I have no idea where your head's at. But, <laughs> um, I, I mean, it, it's a very relevant uh, part of things that happened within the third Reich and having an understanding of what they did and why they did it and how they did it makes the war itself that much more relevant. So um, I just wanted to throw in there some of, you know, my own personal experience from, from seeing things that were related to this um, for, for whatever that was worth. So,
1: and the end of the episode really puts a, a poignant end cap on exactly what you're saying. Cause it, the numbers are staggering, absolutely staggering. It's it's hard to even wrap your head around yeah. the number of people that the the Nazis were responsible for murdering. Mm-hmm. Um you know, this is what you saw on on screen here is not even the tip of the iceberg. No. I mean, that would do an injustice to the scale of the slaughter to to even call it that. Um just millions upon millions uh killed for no other reason than they didn't fit the ethnic profile that Hitler and his crew of flunkies thought was uh superior and appropriate yeah
0: and they even mention uh, in this that uh i think it's you know the next day the intel kind of makes its way back down and they say well yeah you know we're we're starting the the, the allied forces are seeing these things all over the place and in fact the russians came across one that was you know whatever they said a hundred ten times bigger or something which um you imagine may very well have been like auschwitz or something um Mm -hmm. since that was over on the the uh polish side the, the 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 eastern front so yeah yeah, so there's there's a lot there. Um there were, you know, a couple of lighter moments uh in this episode despite the 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 severe gravity of it. Um we mentioned uh Luz getting slugged by the German woman early on also when uh, uh Perconte and 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 O'Keefe uh take over their um machine gun uh position there. And whoever I don't remember who it was that left, and they hand perconte a book, and it's hey, I just finished the book. Here you go. It's the you know now you have something to do. And perconte's first question is, does the book have any sex in it? <laughs> <laughs> and the guy responds, no, it's not that kind of book. <laughs> and the only other interesting thing, and it kind of made for a neat transition, I think, between at the the end of the act. Um, after Nixon went through his stuff and got his letter and all that, and then everyone's mobilizing to to go out to take care of all these these uh, German soldiers that surrendered. Um, a bunch of men from the 101st are singing a song, uh, which is actually called "Blood on the Risers," and the um, uh, the the tune is is this it's it's the same as "Battle Hymn of the Republic," which came from the Civil War. Um, and so, you know, the the chorus to it is gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. And it's all about the plight of paratroopers. So when you listen to the words in it, it's all centered on paratroopers and the things that Dying. they go through. Dying, <laughs> yes. yeah. Uh,
1: it's one of my favorite marching cadences, <laughs> hearing, especially in a big formation, a mm-hmm. you know, battalion or... Uh, or so hearing just dozens of soldiers belting this song out all at once is just really incredible (laughs) the the show does a little bit of uh, of justice to it but when you're right there marching with it there are a lot of cadences that you know most people almost have to be cattle prodded to sound off to but Blood on the Risers <laughs> is one that consistent. You don't have to be an airborne unit, but uh, consistently everybody will belt it out, and I, you'd be hard pressed to find a soldier, airborne or not, that doesn't at least know the the chorus to it. So it's it's still sung today. Interesting. Pro- there's. There's a unit probably, mar- there's a basic training company somewhere uh, in the South that's that's marching <laughs> to this cadence right now as we speak. Probably, probably. This is their pre dinner march. So, yeah, I'm getting a little singing on. We, we talked about most of the military lingo, um, S3. The other two that I had highlighted, APO is Army and Air Force or just Army Post Office. If you've ever sent a package overseas to a soldier, or any service member, you've probably sent it to an APO mm-hmm. address. Um, actually, those packages flow through New York for the most part. If you look at the zip code, it's a New York zip code. But in any event, um, these are these you know, APOs are set up everywhere. Uh, we had one in Afghanistan. I think it's 09355. I wrote it down so many damn times that it, <laughs> it almost got seared onto my brain. But uh, it that that's the way mail moves. Uh, as is crazy as it may sound, that's an integral part of any kind of forward operating area. Even your your smallest forward operating base will typically have some type of mail operation going because it's it's such an essential part. Um, Nick Captain Nixon might argue otherwise. He could have done without the mail. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. Episode. But uh, I I found it hilarious that that the private that's running that post office he's clearly made a rebound by the way from the last episode where he almost executed a german prisoner yes but he's got his own little smuggling operation going he's your go-to for for your vat 69 uh the other one i wanted to highlight was technical sergeant this one isn't really set out loud in any of the episodes but Perconte is shown a lot in this episode if you look at his rank on his sleeve it's the sergeant so three chevrons but it's got a T underneath. Mm-hmm. That is a relic of World War II. And th- that rank only exists in the Air Force. That's the only branch of service that to this day still has a, a technical sergeant. The army got rid of the rank in nineteen forty eight and converted it to what's called sergeant first class. So that would be three chevrons up to up top and then two rockers underneath. And you actually see that. That rank that I'm describing elsewhere in the show—you see it in in this show. I forget who was running point on the patrol that eventually found the concentration camp, but he's wearing that rank. It's you know just traditionally called sergeant first class. So it's it's a relic that thing hasn't been around for a while, but um, many of you might have relatives, grandparents, or or otherwise that actually held that rank during World War II. Mm-hmm.
0: And interestingly enough, there are some other entities that, um, that, that do use it. Uh, in fact, the New York state police, um, I worked with the New York state police for many years doing a lot of different things. They have, um, a handful, just a handful of technical sergeants that are, their purpose is, uh, to give them authority for very specific functions. I believe their quartermaster is a tech sergeant and then they have, um, uh, emergency management sergeants, which are located in each um, in each troop around the state, which are tech sergeants, and um, our state environmental conservation police also has a couple of tech sergeants. Uh, I think they're involved with their academy. So,
1: well, somebody had to clean up the army scraps. That's right. And that's them. right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, cool, uh, Tom. Any final thoughts before we close down here?
1: Oh, it's good to be back on track. First of all, we didn't didn't take us three months to record yeah. this. Uh, also, I it's I, I said this last episode. It it blows me away that we've been doing this since March and we're we're almost at the end now. Uh, last episode should be a fun one, uh, and I can't wait to hear your own experience having set foot. At the Eagles Nest, but uh, I'm I'm looking forward to this. I'm sad that we're going to wrap it up and and transition to something else, but it's been a really fun ride. Yeah,
0: yeah, it really has. I, I agree, Tom. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun doing this. It's such a great series. Interesting to watch these episodes, knowing that we're going to be covering them in a show. So we kind of have to look for different details, and you know, I'm taking notes as I'm watching them. I I, I watch the shows with the closed captioning on, so I can see. You know, because sometimes there's words or names that you miss, um, so it, it's definitely a little different reviewing something for for a show. But uh, but it's a lot of fun, and I think gets us a little bit more in depth in it. So uh, with that, yeah, as as Tom mentioned, the next episode will be our last episode uh, covering Band of Brothers. We do plan on going beyond that to talk about um, at least a handful of war movies that that we identified and. Um, so we're, we're going to continue on past that. But our next episode is Points. Uh, that is the final episode of Band of Brothers. So, folks, please uh, send us your feedback. Let us know what you think uh, about this episode, about the series, about anything that we talked about here. Uh, you can send us an email uh, to dispatches at randomchatter.com.
1: You can also find us online on Twitter. The general handle is at random chatter. Tim, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, at Qui-Gon
0: Tim. That's Tim with two Ms.
1: You can find me at Thomas L. Harper, L as in Larry. You can find all of our shows at randomchatter.com.
0: We also appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us. Uh, let people know that we're doing the show, even though we are kind of at the end of doing Band of Brothers. Folks can always go back and listen to the episodes uh, that we have as as they do a watch or rewatch of of Band of Brothers and and hopefully enjoy the little tidbits that we have to throw at them. So word of mouth is a great thing for podcasts. So if you know of any other folks who like Band of Brothers who like World War II history, please let them know about us. Uh, it also helps to leave some reviews on. Um, any of the places where you find your podcasts, so like iTunes or Google play, you can click on all the stars. Please take a moment to write in a sentence or two about why you enjoy us. That'll kind of help folks gravitate toward us as well. Um, we, as a, we are part of the random chatter network, which has, uh, we have 15 or 16 different shows covering a variety of entertainment topics, um, movies and TV shows and um, all sorts of different things. So, uh, please, as Tom said, check us out at randomchatter.com. Uh, you can also um, contribute to us, to our efforts, uh, running a bunch of podcasts. We, we are actually a, a full-fledged organization, tax ID number, all that good stuff. Um, and it actually costs money to run an organization, to do things like podcasting. We have data storage fees, web hosting fees, that kind of stuff. Um And so you can contribute to us if you head to randomchatter.com slash Patreon. uh, You will find all the instructions there how to do so. The minimum contribution is just a dollar a month, um, which may not be a big deal to you, but it's certainly a big help to us. And that will get you access to our Discord community, which is kind of a series of online chat rooms that can completely waste your entire day uh, as you interact with a lot of other people uh, who have some common interests, talking about things. So we have a room just for this show, just for dispatches from the front. Um, if you're a star Wars fan, there's like eight different rooms for uh, covering different star Wars topics um, and then movies and, and a bunch of other things. Um So uh, if you are interested in some information on Discord, you can go to randomchatter.com slash Discord. That will actually get you into our – we have a public lobby, and our show channels, like our our, uh, channel for this show, um, those you can get into for free without contributing to Patreon. So we do have kind of an open uh, uh, part of that community as well.
1: Now for everyone's favorite part of every episode. And it pains me so much that this is my next to last time giving this (laughs) this disclaimer. I guess we'll have to have a custom done disclaimer every time we watch a movie. We might. (laughs) To disclaim our affiliation with whatever the film we're watching is. But in any event, in case you were wondering, Dispatches from the Front is not endorsed by Homebox Office and is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the Band of Brothers series are registered trademarks and copyrights of HBO or their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with HBO. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual pro- property of Random Chatter Media unless otherwise indicated.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Tom. It just
1: rolls right off the
0: it top. It does. It does. I expect <laughs> you actually to have it memorized uh, for the next episode. So
1: You're gonna, We're going to see each other at Dragon Con And uh, that's the first thing that I'll say. It's just the whole disclaimer. I'm going to quiz you. (laughs) All
0: right, folks. uh, That's going to do it for this episode of Dispatches from the Front. We will catch you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.